2: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, a podcast that pits two movies with something in common in a fight to the death to see which one comes out victorious this week in the Red Corner. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Sure, but sheep look stupid in movies, so make it a unicorn, yeah? From 1982, it's Blade Runner. While in the blue corner, Agent K has ditched Agent J and the rest of the MIB to become a replicant hunter. From 2017, it's Blade Runner 2049.
1: A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants, manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing.
0: What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader.
1: There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Tyrell.
2: I don't get it, Tyrell. Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto.
1: I was looking for six replicants in a city of 106 million people. You ever see this girl, huh? Never seen her, Leslov. What I didn't know was they were looking for me every civilization was built off the back of a disposable workforce but i can only make so many happy birthday
2: so it's replicant versus replicant in today's fight to the death. Which film will be victorious? Let battle commence. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hello Clashbottas. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. And I'm Alex. All these moments will be lost like tears in the rain. Zane. How you doing? Good, Hi. that wasn't very funny. <laughs> no, I, it's not a funny moment it's a it's a beautiful moment
3: okay I don't, I mean, it's beautiful when he does it not when you do yeah, it all
4: of your oh, memories yeah, yeah. will be lost like season right,
3: Oh, okay fine, I wasn't fine. even trying though do you want me to try
4: try to act yeah yeah I do all right. <laughs> go on then go on I've seen don't see, no, it's so embarrassing don't, don't look at I've seen sea
2: beams glitter off the townhouser gate attack ships ablaze off the shoulder of Orion all these memories will be lost
4: like tears
2: in the rain.
4: Why are you not embarrassable? It's weird,
2: isn't it? It is, it is a bit. It is a bit. Uh, right, very quickly, because I know we've got a massive... This is genuinely, to my mind, one of the densest movies, both in terms of backstory and in terms of themes that we've covered on the show, so there's going to be a lot to get through. However, I do have something for you. Uh... Yay! Yeah, anything Chris can do, I can do better. You need to say. Explain what happened. So Chris went to Portugal and he brought us back some uh, Portuguese-made custard tarts and he left them in the bottom of his bag and they went green. So (laughs) I went to Portugal... Just
3: to get some custard tarts to prove how you can bring them back into the studio without them going green. You bought the exact same packet as mine. Did you buy them at the airport? Yes. Yeah. Oh, you probably bought them from the
2: same shop as I me did, then, because yeah. we were at the same yeah, airport. Yeah, I did. They were only shot, the only shop that sold them. Uh, they're very nice. This is, it says six. I've eaten two. There's four in here. So okay. Great. One for Blondine as well. It's two each. Well, one, two. Yeah, fine. All right then. Fine. I was going to give you two each. But yeah, Blondine can have one, of course. So yeah. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. It's my pleasure. My absolute pleasure. Right then. Big week. Blade Runner takes on Blade Runner twenty forty nine. These were Chris's choices. Why?
3: Uh, well, it's about time we did Blade Runner. It's mm-hmm. been on the list since the beginning. It's a titan of sci fi cinema. Um, but also it's celebrated birthday, isn't it? Of course it, it is. It's because <laughs> it's it's because it's forty years since nineteen eighty two, and nineteen eighty two was non stop bangers. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's the fortieth anniversary of Blade Runner. So about time we got round to discussing.
2: He loves an anniversary, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He loves an anniversary. The social media likes the anniversary. Yeah, yeah. I understand. I understand. Algorithms. I'll <laughs> just that Algorithms. So the clue you gave on last week's show that I gave you, which I was very happy with, was?
3: Uh, you can run, but you can't hide. Mm. Great. And you follow that up on Twitter with? A clue I think I've used before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, these films have big dick energy. Dick with a capital D, implying it's a name. Mm, big dick energy. And also, I guess, private detectives. Yes. Yeah, of course. That's exactly what I was thinking. You were,
2: were you? Matt. Yeah, it's good though. Okay, so the guesses hijacked a shuttle and arrived on our Twitter at ClashPod. We are also on Instagram at ClashPod where you can watch videos of each show. Let's all wave at our individual cameras now to prove it works. Great, we look like morons. (laughs) Um, So based on the big dick energy, uh, we had a few guesses that are wrong. Tibbs said, just because I'd kick myself, it actually turns out to be Moby Dick versus the heart of the sea. Big Dicks. Good good shout. Big Dicks. Gary Bailey, the fugitive Richard Dick Kimball versus Catch Me If You Can, Leonardo Dick (laughs) Aprio.
4: That's funny. And this has
2: thrown up one of the weirdest pairings I've ever seen. Tricky Dicky, Twitter handle already. Big Dick Energy, craziest pairing. Richie Rich versus Vice, the Dick Cheney story. Okay. I'd quite like to do Richie Rich. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Mm. Okay. Not, Just discussing the pub. not with Vice, though. Not with <laughs> no. Vice. It doesn't work. Uh, our only correct answer, Chris. Oh, hello. Uh, uh, you love it. It's uh, you. You nailed it. Our only correct answer. Congratulations, long-time listener, Lara Jackson, the only one who got it right. What does that mean, Chris? Good clues. Good clues. Your prize this week, Laura, is to become a ground-floor investor in my new company, Replicant. We supply replica ants or replicants. If you want to own an ant farm but are worried if you're still happy with it in four years from now, what would you do? You need replicants. Our ants have a lifespan of four years. So after that, you're free to do something else with your time. Replicants. All the fun of ants without the lifelong commitment.
4: Because we've got time for this. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, God. You've got the floor, Alex. Should I do a little bit of improv while we're at it? I guess he's had
2: two weeks to uh, prepare yeah. for this one. <laughs> been busy. I've been busy. Right then, it's the connection section. Normally at this point we would find connections between the two films. I don't think we bother thoughts.
3: I don't think so. I mean, all I wrote down was that across both films I had no one to identify with, <laughs> which, which very seldom happens.
4: <laughs> but it's probably a plus. I guess so. In both cases.
2: Animals made out of paper or wood is mine.
4: Yeah. um, Nasty raincoats.
2: Okay, let's not not do it. Yeah, we were right the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, then. On Thursday, I'll be heading into the future to talk Blade Runner 2049, which means today V is looking into the past future of 2019 in Blade Runner. V, take us on a journey.
4: Androids dream of electric sheep No, but then runners don't carry blades or run In Ridley Scott's visually lush, philosophically thorny And symbolically overloaded adaptation of a book That actually does have electric sheep in it Which the film wisely chose to admit Opting instead for the protagonist Rick Deckard To gun down an unarmed naked woman in the back And sexually assault a young girl But she's a replicant, so fuck out. Well yeah, there's a bit of that too, Rick, you massive hypocrite Blade Runner, the final cut, brings us the truest version of a Stone Cold sci fi classic which examines what it means to exist authentically, how to embrace death as the very thing that makes life worth living, with its unhinged clamour for connection, sex, love, and recognition, emitting dreadful voiceover and an ending recycled from Stanley Kubrick's Leavings. They're still not quite sticking the landing because I don't know if you noticed, but they left in all that stupid gymnastics. Nice. Okay, so nice. when did you first see Blade Runner, yeah. any of the versions?
2: So this is the section we're calling Histories with the
4: Movie. That's correct, where, where we, we talk, talk about, about our individual histories yeah, 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 <laughs> with yeah. this movie. Yeah, I did say I was going to do that at the top. Just yeah, a little, no, no, sorry, I forgot. It's, it's, it's a good thing <laughs> to do, reminder. so go on. <laughs> uh, all right
2: then, uh, so I watched it once when I was way too young, the theatrical version yes. on VHS. I did not understand it because I watched it going... Why is Harrison Ford, a.k.a. Han Solo and Indiana Jones, not being funny and charming? And why is he being so sullen? I don't understand this. I don't like him. Then I watched the director's cut in the 90s and was starting to warm up to the idea and we had those teenage boy conversations about is he a replicant or not? And then I watched the final cut uh, much later and this is the second time I've watched the final cut in preparation for this show. You've seen
4: a lot of Blade Runner.
2: Yeah, well, I covered Blade Runner 2049 in Hungary for Sky. And yep. so I did a lot of Blade Runner research back then. I see. Preparing for it. So I feel like I kind of know a lot about the history of this sure. movie.
4: What about
3: you? Same.
4: Exactly the same. Pretty similar.
3: No, <laughs> I'll get to that. But we uh I recorded it off the telly when I was a kid. It was on at Christmas. I watched it when I was way too young and I wasn't the smartest kid and I do remember going into school after Christmas holidays and saying, I've seen the new Han Solo movie. It's boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, telling everyone oh, the new Han Solo movie. And I'm trying to think, wow, how can I have been that stupid? But a child's mind. Yeah, it was. It's
2: just weird because, you you know, you just knew him from hmm. Star Wars in India and you watched this and it was like, mmm? No. I mean, I think there's about, I think the fight with Leon, I remember
3: thinking, oh, he's doing some funny Han Solo kind of stuff here. And that's it. Yeah. So I didn't like it. And then uh, when the director's cut came out, I remember Empire magazine saying, oh, this is good now. Yes. (laughs) Went to the the cinema to see it, was completely overwhelmed by the visuals and uh, fell in love with it then. And then I had to do a bunch of research Um, more recently. 2015, I had the producer... Michael Dealey, a very elderly man now, uh, came into my uh, studio, my uh, workplace, to do an interview about the history of Blade Runner. Mm. So he's really interesting. Got some good quotes from him. And yeah, just a film that I've watched many, many times. Okay. How about you?
4: I saw the theatrical version. Uh, it was a Mark Parsons video. It was his dad's favourite film, his dad's favourite soundtrack. So it's really important to the Parsons family. I wasn't that impressed potentially because of that piece of shit voiceover Mm -hmm. at the end. It just ruined the whole thing. So then after that, I actually wasn't that bothered about watching it again. I watched 2049, but I wasn't bothered about catching up with the director's cut and the final cut, then watch the final cut in the week. So I'm not like an uber fan. Okay.
2: Okay, so Mark Parsons,
4: sorry. Loves this film. And he had the
2: theatrical version, Yes, though. it's
4: a mystery, isn't it? It was on VHS. I think it was taped off the telly, like you said. Mm.
2: Just because uh, I want to know, has he since sort of gone, well, that was the only version that I had? Yes, of course. So he's not He's like... washed his hands of it. Right, okay. The only <laughs> yeah. person I've ever read who genuinely loves the theatrical version more than either of the newer versions, was Guemo del Toro. Mm. Guemo del Toro goes on record and goes, I like a happy ending yeah. and this gives me a happy mm. ending. I so- will say,
4: I think the ambiguity over whether or not Decade is a replicant in the theatrical is better, but you know how I feel about voiceover and it is bad it's up there with the very worst but
3: but we were so young when we watched it I think if you're a bit older that is the version you watch for 20 uh, 10 years and Mm. you became quite attached to it so I do know people that do love that version Mm. I just think it hit us at the wrong time and even if it hadn't had a voiceover we would not have liked that when we were six yeah
4: okay Fair enough.
3: All right, then. But speaking of the music, I'd remember another thing then. I, I did go and see Massive Attack <gasps> do the score live as oh part, of, my God, that's as part of Meltdown. Yeah, Guy Garvey came out and did some vocalising on it. And oh, that my was, God. It was a really good night. I mean, I might have left before the end to watch some football, but it Beat was a very traffic. good night. What are you like? Guy Garvey <laughs> added some vocal, like Blade Runner. I guess He's a any... man, a man <laughs> who runs with blades. Are there scenes where people sing in the film? There must be, I think, there's, is there a show there is, tune at some point? There's an old
4: show called it, One More Kiss? Exactly. Just, he did the show tune he did the show tune please tell me he did the weird
2: cat sound when anything sinister is going to happen where it goes it would be great ladies and gentlemen welcome Guy Garvey he's going to provide some vocals
3: hi guys but I I did leave early to go and watch England in the World Cup uh, around the corner and Guy Garvey left early as well he's having a fag outside and I said well done well done Guy (laughs) nailed it great cat sounds fantastic
4: (laughs) So um, I've done some research this week. I'm just so surprised. There's really not that much to say. So I I thought we'd just rattle through this. (laughs) Get it done in about five minutes. Um, as I'm sure you are aware, but have you read it? So the novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K Dick is the source material from 1968.
2: No, but can I say a really stupid thing and I'm sure it's stupid? I'm I'm just I'm going to just put my neck on the line and say I think it's a really silly title because it, is it about counting sheep? Like you count sheep to well, fall asleep. You don't dream of sheep. So it should be Do Androids Count Sleep Sheep to no, Fall Asleep. No, that's not what it means.
4: Well, the thing is, I have I only read it in the week. because, I was like, like I said, I've done some research. You so, read it? Yeah, this week. You read the book?
2: Yeah, oh, I never read the book. Now we're I, <laughs> I, I read a, I read a Philip K. Dick novel, The Man in the High Castle. Did
4: you? What this week? This week? Get yeah. Out. Yeah, it's
2: useless for this.
4: <laughs> <laughs> we don't need do to Okay. Yeah, I read it because it's always been on the list for a while. And again, Mark's dad loved it, and so it's just this—you know—I should have done it ages ago, but I always assumed it was a witty play on counting sheep. Page two. Rick really wants an electric. Was like no. an actual electric yeah. sheep? A He's saving ridiculous. up.
3: He's saving up to buy electric because sheep because she, it's all about the animals have died out.
4: Which we'll come back to when we talk about the voigt Kampf test because in the book it makes so much sense because animals are so sacred because there are mm. no animals. Right. So if you register emotion, that's good. But if you don't register any emotion over uh, the harming of an animal, you're a replicant. Sadly. Whereas context is really important when you're when you're reading it now. I'll get to it anyway. It doesn't matter. So this is the
2: tortoise moment. The tortoise. In the so the rewrite test. the question
4: in the script the tortoise moment isn't in the book but there are stuff about uh, you, you You arrive at a banquet or you're watching a, ban- a film of a banquet something like that and um, this is in the film and the, one of the courses is Oysters Mm. and you're supposed to go oh, I would never eat an oyster right. kind of thing but you're reading it now you're like oh okay I'd fail that test because oh God. Yeah.
2: so that's why when Rachel goes and there's a, a, a wasp on your arm or a bee on your arm she goes I'd kill it Yeah,
4: that's like oh hello and also it, obviously jumping ahead a little bit but Leon in the, the the sort of establishing scenes in Blade Runner he's like what's a what's a, what's a Does he say what's a tortoise or what's yeah. a turtle Yeah, he says, what's a you tort- kind of think oh, is he a bit, does he just not know but in the book it's really clear that lots of people don't know what lots of animals are because they've been extinct for such a long time right. uh, anyway but then what I did read was the source inspiration for Philip K. Dick. Ugh. I keep thinking about this.
3: this oh, is... it's horrible.
4: It's really horrible, but my brain has tried to sort of make it better.
3: So I don't know. I'm excited. Well, it, it's, it's, it came out of his research for Man in the High Castle. So yeah. reading that book was useful. Okay, great.
4: So, Tell me. he Philip K. Dick, when he was a young man, he found the diaries of an SS officer. This SS officer was stationed in Warsaw, so I'm assuming he was in a camp. Right. And he read the diary and the diary said, uh, quote, we are kept awake at night by the cries of starving children. And Philip K. Dick thought there is something among us that's morphologically identical to a human being, but that is not human. It's not human to complain in your diary that starving children are keeping you awake.
3: so Mm. that's bad sort of defective group mind think but they've just become disassociated yeah
4: the only way I can live with that is if I think the SS officer is saying I am morally struggling with this issue it's not a noise complaint but I don't actually believe that that's what it is I believe it's a noise complaint
3: but am I right in thinking so in the book The replicants are, or the androids rather, are deplorable as far as Dick's concerned. They're not sort of the heroes that they become in the movie towards the end. His mind: these are not good. This is not a good thing. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. he has
4: no. That's what the the arc of the book. He has absolutely no feelings towards them, and then he starts to develop empathy, but it's confused with lust. So that's the sort of gateway to empathy, and then he does dispatch them all, and he doesn't care. Um, But the book's got this like. sort of this big religious subsection as well called Mercerism which the I'm glad they dropped that. excised, excised. Yeah. But they're they they're called Andes in the book which is a bit nope. So that got changed to Replicant which nope. is obviously much better. So the book exists. It's 1968, 1969. Martin Scorsese fancies it but then he doesn't fancy it. Um, and so in 1974 it's optioned by Herb Jaffe and his son Robert writes the script but Philip K. Dick hated it. Uh, there's quite a famous quote where Robert Jaffe flies to meet Philip K. Dick and they're at the airport and Philip K. Dick says, shall I beat you up here at the airport or shall I beat you up at my apartment? <laughs> because he hated the script so much, which is quite funny. Um, and then you get the eventual writer Hampton Fancher. He was an actor. He was looking for something to option. He had read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And he didn't love it, but he did like uh, the through line of a detective chasing after androids. Um, then he gets his friend Brian Kelly to acquire it. They connect with Michael Dealey. Hampton Fancher starts on the screenplay, and then they're excising the elements that we've talked about, like the actual electric sheep. And also in the book, it's quite this is a really important part of the book, but Deckard's got a wife, and she's really depressed. Mm. and she's really disconnected, and it really upsets him because he's going after these androids all day every day to make money to buy her stuff, and she just doesn't seem to care. And so she has another plot where she sort of wakes up a little bit throughout the book and reconnects with him. But by that point, it doesn't matter to him either. So they keep sort of missing each other.
3: And famously, that Fancher script, supposedly most of it took place in an apartment. Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) Like it was a a romantic drama that takes place in an apartment because eventually when Ridley Scott comes on board. He says, "I want to see what's outside yeah. the window." Yeah, James <laughs> yeah. is a great writer, but his characters never leave the room.
4: <laughs> it's it's brilliant. So Finch complains about it because he said it was maddening. Ridley's full of ideas. Tuesday's different than Monday. I would disagree with him, but he knew better than I did, and I was too arrogant. So it is a bit of a battle. Um, Ridley Scott wants it to be a neo noir, like you say. He wants to. He keeps screaming at him, "What's outside the window?" Um, so anyway, what this culminates in is Ridley Scott brings on board David Peoples um, without telling Hampton Fancher.
2: Yeah, so, Hampton Fancher didn't he want originally when he wrote it? He wanted Robert Mitchum. He did, to yeah. play the role of Deckard, which yeah. I can see. Yeah, I mean, he said
3: thirty. He wanted thirty-year-old Robert Mitchum, which oh, was was impossible, oh, obviously. Okay. But that was that was how he saw the role, which would have been better.
2: Uh,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, I you know I don't think you're wrong. Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah, Hampton was the cerebral one. Peoples is the guy who can do the action. Yeah. That was that was Ridley Scott's thinking. Yeah. And it did, I you think it's
4: a horrible situation. Apparently, Hampton Fancher gets handed a script at a Christmas party, read it, and he's like, what's this? Turns it over. Oh, it's Blade Runner. Oh, I didn't realise. So it's a horrible way to find out, but it is the best product.
3: It's funny though, when Peoples met them uh, when they were interviewing him for the job, uh, he'd read the script and they said to him uh, what do you think of it he said it's brilliant I don't think I can improve it
2: yeah. <laughs> and
3: they gave him the job yeah.
2: <laughs> but it was Peoples who came up with Replicant wasn't he yeah. because what did Ridley Scott say he says we can't we can't call these fucking bastards robots <laughs> and so Peoples said his daughter was studying biology yeah. how about Replicant it so is brilliant.
3: he came up with Replicant yeah. and it should be said that Hampton Fancher and David Peoples are, are really good friends now yeah like they figured it out over the course of this very prolonged well, when you get like a you know
4: a cult hit under your belt, I think it tends to bring you together. Wasn't it the voiceover in the end that brought them
2: together? Because they thought each of them mm. when the shit voiceover Funny. was added at the end, and it wasn't either of them that had written it. It was a brand new guy, Bud York, and the producer brought in. Mm. So. They both thought it was the other one who'd done it. And in the end, Hampton Fancher got drunk at an airport and was like, why did you write that fucking awful voiceover? And he was (laughs) like, I thought you wrote it. Bang, Friends for Life. Yeah, of course.
4: That would bond you. Do you know the story behind the title, Blade Runner? I
2: quite like the two previous titles that didn't get gone with. Uh, Dangerous Days, which obviously, I I like that. I like Dangerous Days. It's so
4: cheesy. I think
2: uh, The Mechanismo. Rubbish.
4: (laughs) Rubbish. I say this as someone who is rubbish at titles, which is why I understand why you see Blade Runner on a different property. And you're like, that's fucking awesome. I must simply must buy it. Yeah, I know. But it's just
2: like you said in your synopsis of the film. It's just it's just two cool words. Yeah, It, it doesn't is. make any sense. <laughs> no,
3: <it doesn't> <laughs> <laughs> uh, one title I didn't know had been discussed and actually Ridley Scott, when there was a delay in production, he decided this is going to be the title was Gotham City. Oh, really? Scott what? said to Dealey, we've got to call it Gotham City. And uh, Batman creator Bob Kane said, no, you can't. No.
4: <laughs> yeah. And I'm very litigious.
3: <laughs> and so. also, it's a terrible <laughs> idea. Oh, there's a new Batman movie.
4: <laughs> so, yeah, to explain, The Blade Runner is a, is a novel, which makes perfect sense in the novel, because in the novel, it's a sci-fi thing. You, if you want to get medical care, you have to have sterilisation. So there's a black market in medicine and procedures. And the people that smuggle the scalpels are called Blade Runners, which makes perfect sense. But I get why you would just buy it as a present for someone because it's fucking amazing. So uh, casting, we've talked about Robert Mitchum, also Dustin Hoffman, who's mm. in the frame. Yeah, uh, but Deely, he kind of killed Deely, it.
3: Yeah, Dealey said he'd be quirky, but he th- he thought also Hoffman would make a sinister um, decade, which is what they were thinking about at the time. And then they changed their minds and decided they wanted more of a classical detective.
2: Yeah. And also, Scott says, Dustin is brilliant, but in those days he would just talk and talk. Eventually, Dealey said, you know what? Fuck it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> which is well, excellent. What did he star in instead, though? Tootsie. Tootsie, exactly. That worked out <laughs> fine for him because that was a hit.
4: Sean Young and Daryl Hannah, they were virtually unknown. Rutger Howe, this is really interesting. Rutger Howe was cast, Philip K. Dick loved him because he, he's this sort of Ubermensch mensch type. In the book, he is described as slovenly. He's big, he stinks, I think. Like, he's this big, slow-moving guy. He is not this sleek robot looking dude that Howard is. It's interesting that Philip K. Dick responded in the way he did because Roy doesn't come across in the book he comes across as a natural leader, but not so much of this like
3: cold eyed superman kind of thing. And Deckard's schlubby in the book as well. And obviously Harrison Ford is the opposite of schlubby.
4: Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. In the book I guess he is. He doesn't ever seem physically like exhausted by what he's got to do, but he's not at the he's not at the peak of his prime mm. kind of thing.
2: Fair enough. But Harrison Ford was about to be big yeah wasn't it spielberg i mean he was already quite big (laughs) he was big after star wars but i think he was i think spielberg said to them he's
3: going to be stratospheric after indiana jones well they showed they showed him the rushes because it was in london so that's your man isn't it yeah even he you know he looks good in a hat they don't don't give him a hat but he's got the you know the the film noir detective look
4: they wanted the hat but they couldn't have the hat because the hat had been used Mm. so no hat uh so anyway you're off but it is a troubled shoot um I'm going to say it culminates in a very childish T-shirt war.
2: This is insane.
4: So who's got the time?
2: Uh, <laughs> apparently, Marvin, the makeup artist.
4: <laughs> so Ridley Scott gives an interview to a British newspaper, I think it was The Guardian, saying he prefers working with British crews because they just do what he wants and they say, yes, governor.
3: Mm, and I think the other issue he had with them as well, I know, sorry, I know that I'm interrupting the yes, no, governor no, thing, fine. was that they wouldn't allow him to touch the camera. No. Mm. So union rules meant he couldn't operate the camera and he said it's like taking Arnold Palmer's golf clubs away. Okay. Which is not the, it's not the analogy. Same thing. It's not <laughs> the same thing. Because then
4: you literally can't play golf. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah. It's, I mean, God, Ridley Scott. I he know, is? He's, he's a, a
4: gold
3: mine for quotes. <laughs> so what were the T-shirts? The t- so they made oh, T-shirts so saying... Oh, so the
4: Americans get T-shirts that say, yes, Governor, my ass, which I think is very funny. Yep. Then the British lot reply with, xenophobia sucks, which I think, give that another pass, because yeah. that's not as funny. Come on, Brits. So one nil US, Let I think. us down.
2: <laughs> There's two different versions to how this plays out in the end, though. Like, a lot of people think that it was still bad blood on set, but some people say after they wore the xenophobia sucks T-shirts, everyone was like, oh, OK, one each, oh, funny. Everyone sort of hugged and made
4: up and
3: got on with yeah. it. Yeah. Well, you've got to get on with it, haven't you?
4: Um, Ridley Scott eventually got fired from this film uh, because of this time-wasting bullshit, I expect. Um, well, it was... <laughs> was he making
3: T-shirts, Ridley? <laughs> yeah. What the fuck are you <laughs> doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult to get the X right. <laughs> well, he he pissed everyone off as well, the actors, because as as um Michael Dealey said, he was moving ashtrays around the shot rather than talking to the actor. <laughs> And uh, you know, if if the audience is someone said if the audience is looking at an ashtray in the background, we've messed up big time. I think so. Um but he ended the film 10% over budget, right. which he wasn't allowed to do. And it was um it was Bud Yorkin, that producer, who fired um Michael Dealey and Ridley Scott. And Dealy's so funny when I was talking to him, he went, because he's quite posh. He's like, it was ill mannered rubbish, <laughs> stupid nonsense, <laughs> just rudeness. Um it
4: is rude. Uh, apparently, <laughs> yeah, because
3: Bud Yorkin sent a
2: note and it... It said, it said, um, basta, that's it, it's over. Okay. Like, like, he's a fucking mafioso. Jesus. Like, what an
3: idiot. There's a very good documentary on YouTube that uh, Mark Camo did about 20 years ago about all of this, where they all go on the record. And um, Scott says, I just spoke to the DGA and they corrected it. So it didn't last long. Yeah. And I don't think they ever stopped working. They no, just they didn't. received a letter.
4: They just got a letter that says they're fine. But, you, but also it's like, PS, can you finish the film, please? Because no one else is going to do it. So you do get a film. But Philip K. Dick didn't like it at first, but guess what he did like? It's sort of an adjacent quote, but I'm taken with it, so I would like to read it out. So he was really taken with Sean Young, calling her, quote, ready, the super destructive, cruel, beautiful, dark-haired woman that I eternally write about, and now I've seen a photograph of her and I know she exists and I will seek her out and presumably she will destroy me. Mm. He Uh, asked for
2: her number after he
4: saw her. Yeah, and someone said no. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think she wants you to have that. Um, and then we'll we, we, we all talk about this at length, but the the version, uh, they test it, audiences are confused by it. So we very hastily add a voiceover, which explains everything. And we change the ending, which is then restated, where Deckard and Rachel are in the lift. And we have a happy ending um, where they sort of flee into a forest um, using some leftovers from The Shining hilariously. Mm. Uh Yeah, so...
2: I mean, Bud Yorkin genuinely, he stands by, or he stood by uh, his decision to put that ending on. He said uh, the original ending was a huge shock to audiences. The elevators slam shut and boom, you're out. On every preview card was written, what the fuck kind of ending was that? <laughs> It didn't work. Stanley Kubrick was a very close friend of mine and I knew The Shining and I knew he could get footage to me. Uh, to which Dealey responded, that's a lie. Howard Bud Yorkin knows Stanley Kubrick.
3: <laughs> but it is true. I, I found an old copy of Starlog magazine online. Oh, no, Fantastique uh, from 1982. And before the film came out, it was Ridley Scott saying, these test screenings have been a real problem. Mm. People are saying it looks amazing, but what's going on? So you can totally understand why they went down that route if people just Did not get it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And Ridley was party to that decision to add that onto the ending because Ridley Scott himself says it was actually me who contacted Stanley Kubrick because, you know, I know him. (laughs) I actually
4: know him. (laughs) All right. So, are we done?
2: yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get we'll get into the yeah. There's, there's we'll yeah. There's more, we'll, there's we'll, more. we'll return. Just a little soups on. Uh this is an 89% rated movie in Rotten Tomatoes, Blade Runner 2049, 88%. Oh, close really? match. Close match as far as RT is concerned.
4: Okay. Well, before we talk about the film, well, before we go through the scenes of the film, we're going to take a small break.
3: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
0: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. All right, then, shall we talk about the film? Well done,
4: Vicky. Thank you. No. <laughs>
2: I thought we were just going to leave it. Just let it flow. I know,
4: I know. All right, let's talk about the film, shall we? Yes. So, it's LA, it's 2019. I'm sure a lot of people know this, but just to run through it anyway, let's just establish the Nexus 6 replicant is equal to us after an off-world mutiny. They are illegal on Earth and can be retired by Blade Runners. That's your plot. Uh, Cool name, everyone. Well done. (laughs) So, um, because we watched the final cut, the, the visuals are just so much more... More than they were, in my memory anyway, at least in the theatrical cut, never more so than in the establishing of the cityscape mm. and the fact that it's at night, which is brilliant later on in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, because the establishing shots are in the daytime, which is brilliant. And we move over this city, which is kind of on fire and it looks crowded and all the rest of it. And then we're inside a human eye or is it a human eye? It doesn't matter. But the point is... The whole universe is inside you. Mm. You are made of stars, etc.
2: I always like to think that's Rutger Hauer's eye. I do too. Because he's heading towards, because it cuts to a car flying towards the Tyrell building. Mm. And I think he's on his way to pick up Leon after Leon shoots Holden.
4: Yeah, Mm, that's a good point. I think it's just meant to, you know, it doesn't... I know. It could be anyone. Yeah.
3: You can't just make stuff up, Alex. I
4: know. It's a man. Let's say that much, shall we? The or whole world a is sadly either man. It's a replicant man. Yeah, a replicant man. Sorry, yeah, man. I apologise. Which well, is higher up the pecking order than a replicant <laughs> woman for obvious reasons because they can do more work or something. He is the leader. <laughs> <laughs> so then Brian James, as Leon, he's taking the Voigt camp test, which is designed to measure empathy, not IQ. Oh, so we need to talk about Sid Mead. The, oh, the, oh, the, just to get a credit yeah. as a visual futurist, it's just. I mean I just don't
2: a dream. Think, I don't think you can underestimate the importance of that establishing shot and the way that city looks cuz yeah. what I didn't realize was this this is what a billion other visions of the future and indeed what people consider the future is going to look like yeah. is based on this image yes. that they created for yeah. this film that I take for granted someone goes you know kind of like a uh, you Blade know uh, kind <laughs> of dystopian future I'm like yeah massive skyscrapers big billboards <laughs> neon that's it that's this film. Yeah, I mean, that's not. I've just, you know,
3: I didn't even realise. I just thought, yeah, hey, it's
2: been around for years. It's here. Yeah, this is its genesis.
3: It's incredible. It's just incredible. And in the pages of Heavy Metal magazine mm. and the stuff that Morbius did, and so it's it did pick it did pick and choose a lot from what was out but there. But it in put terms them all together sure. into this one beautiful like this is cyberpunk.
4: Yes, and what we get to later, which we will get to later, but in this establishing shot, you're like, this is the future. Later on, we get to that fun sort of anachronistic take on it's the. Full- Forties, it's the eighties, but it's also twenty nineteen. So you're like smashing together three. You wouldn't know it's the eighties when you're in the eighties, but when you're watching it now in twenty two, you can see some sort of eighties influences. Mm, Sure, Sure. and yet
2: Ridley Scott wasn't it. He said basically the mistake that so many people make when they're making sci fi is to just sort of think about what the future might be. And he said, I'm going to look to the past, and fire and drag moments of the past and see how
3: that would have evolved into this future also those 40s fashion never really date and never really go out of style those those, those classic cuts for women's clothes and the the suits for men they just don't date so as long as you dress your characters in those outfits you'll be fine and live uh, in East London
4: (laughs) What's interesting I mean I totally agree with you I think the only thing the first time I watched it the only thing that was like 80s to me really was uh, the the makeup on the women especially Zora very 80s makeup hair Um, and the hair, yep. yeah, and all of Pris. She's the eighties. Mm. Um, and she's not like that in the book, blah, blah, blah. Sid Mead said, I do not claim to define the future. It's what you said about I I think about why things are the way they are now, combine that awareness with how they were and how they would be brought into reality. This defines the look of future stuff. So drawing from the past. Which mm. is why but that's also why the noir thing makes sense as well. Mm. It's mm. such a good combination. Yeah, Sid Mead said
2: he basically looked at um. Metropolises that existed like New York and Hong Kong, and just added three, added another five hundred feet to the height of the skyscrapers, and created yeah. this idea in his head. Although it's not really explored in the film, these skyscrapers would have a sky garden, and people would never go below the thirtieth floor. Yeah, and it was the class, the upper class were at the top, and then the streets you would never want to go to because it was filth and
3: mud, dirts and grubby. And yeah. that's what the film is. Yeah, but that's from uh, Ben Wheatley's film. um, High Rise. Yes. From the book by uh, J.G. Ballard. J.G. Ballard. Mm. I mean, that's the plot of that. Yes. Um, But that's not cyberpunk. No. And his idea as well was that because the rich would be above the seventh floor is what he said. um, The ground level was the basement. Mm. That's the basement of the world now. Oh, I see. Oh, that's and that's who exists in the basement is who we're seeing.
4: So, um, this Voigt camp test, uh, this is the way that you decide who is a replicant and who's a human, because where we are with the Nexus Sixes is that the the Blade Runners will run the risk of retiring a human by mistake. The book goes into more detail about uh human beings that are human but do struggle with empathy, such as people with um mental ill health, and how you didn't how you don't retire them by accident. It's a
2: really interesting thing that you sort of feel could have been explored in the film, yeah. the idea of like making the mistake because of how human these replicants are. Yeah. Deckard making a mistake. Mistake, one of the Blade Runners making a mistake. I kind of think that was a missed opportunity. Yeah, and having
4: to start at a position of disadvantage, like mm. this is your last chance because you did that yeah, exactly. five years ago,
2: whatever. Yeah, because when they say if you ever retired a human by mistake, he, you know, he's very clear. No, nope, no, I haven't. <laughs> Never. Whereas you should, I think there should be
3: a grey area there. Yeah. Oh, well, I th- for me, there is a grey area because he, he, he. We'll get into this. I think he's a pretty bad cop. He's a pretty bad shot. Um, there's no way he hasn't killed a human being by accident. <laughs> I think he's rubbish. So this Voigt camp test, however.
2: Can we discuss, like, it seems pretty loose. Like, what happens if you find out you've got a replicant sitting opposite you, which Holden does, mm. and then gets shot? It seems like, should you still, you know, just in case they are a replicant, check if they've got a fucking gun on them? Yeah,
4: that's a good point. I mean, the so in the book, you have a a, a disc attached to your cheek to measure your blush response, and there's a camera on your eye to measure your dilation. So you, you can't cheat it because replicants don't blush. Leon walks in, I'd be like, I'm just, just check him. (laughs) Because look at him. Look at that
3: wet bottom lip. That's scary. Look at those eyes. The wet lip and those eyes. Just checking uh, for a fucking gun. Have, I don't care whether he's a replicant. I know it's 82, but have you seen a 1980s action film? Yeah. It's Brian James. Yeah. He's a baddie. <laughs> he's in <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah, he's come out of the swamps from Southern Comfort and he's a replicant. Yeah, no, you're right. It
4: makes no sense because in this version, it's not true in the book, but in this, they've they've killed pe- loads of people, so they're dangerous creatures. Yes. No, they
3: have killed lots of people. Here. I think they killed 23 people. You know, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So
4: you're sitting across from something that you believe to be yes. really dangerous, whereas you could be like, well... If they obey, which they do in 2049, you wouldn't feel as, or they're supposed to, yeah. as threatened.
2: I think the thing is, as well, it looks to me when you watch that scene, Holden is getting a positive replicant reading from the Voigt Kampf machine. Yeah. But in I I don't want to start this now, but in a deleted scene that I don't think made it into any of the cuts. He talks to Deckard when he's in hospital about how the machine wasn't giving him a positive reading, which kind of makes you forgive him for not immediately going, Gah, yeah. this looks like you're a replicant, yeah. and actually just being quite cool about him.
4: I think the Voigtkamp test, so I spoke before about the, the context, Doesn't I don't think the context has quite worked in this scene, because we're talking about if it was a turtle on its back, what would you do? And you're meant to feel, you're meant to understand that animals are so scared. Mm. You, there are no animals that you, you, if you didn't flip it back, you're a, you're not human because you don't have any feelings for this creature. But then they're also talking about sex and nakedness in a really prudish way that doesn't quite fit with the future. So when they're talking about the animals, fine, that makes sense if you explain it a bit more. But later on. They'll say to Rachel, your husband, assuming she's heterosexual, your husband has a picture of a naked lady and she's supposed to go, oh, I would never kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, why is your attitude towards naked ladies stuck in the 40s, basically? Oh, I mean, yeah, yes and no.
2: <laughs> the husband in that scenario does frame it and put it on their bedroom wall, yeah. which I think if anyone <laughs> did now in 2020, twenty, would be like, Really?
4: Yeah. (laughs) What
2: if she was really fit? (laughs) Exactly. Let's both do a test. (laughs) Look, wait, wait for them to go out and hang a picture <laughs> of a naked woman on the wall. Just go, well, you, don't be a prude. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful picture. you we go and buy a copy of Razzle on the way home? Beautiful
4: piece of art. Uh, so, Razzle. Razzle. Uh,
2: that, that's one of them. I things. think it is. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, A lot of them were named after Ford cars for some reason. Sierra, Fiesta. Sorry, what is
4: happening? What are you talking about? We're listing the names of porn pornographic mags. magazines. Are you? Yeah,
2: just for your benefit. <laughs> <Right, fine. laughs> just for you. Little treat.
4: What, has it got stuff in it that I like?
2: <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Great articles.
4: (laughs) And yeah, like a sort of marketplace section where you can buy stuff.
2: Anything you can think of. Anything. All right, fine. Dream a dream, and it's there.
4: So we're going to go down to street level. And so you meet. So when I watched this, I was like 20. And I'm like, okay, I don't feel the sort of Indiana Jones vibes as strongly because I've had enough time to get used to it. But I think it's a little bit, it's possibly a little bit of a weak introduction to like your big hero. He's just having some noodles, Deckard, and he's being a bit insouciant. And he's just sort of, there isn't like a big scene where he's like, I'm going to show you who I am in this moment.
3: Well, that's what the voiceover does, (laughs) where he says, sushi, that's what my wife called me. A cold fish.
2: Mm. <laughs> and that's uh, that's because the original end beginning that Ridley Scott wanted, they didn't shoot in the end, which was Deckard. It was basically the start of Blade Runner 2049 was originally meant to be the start of Blade Runner, mm. right. where Deckard is sitting. It starts on a boiling pot and then a farmer walks in. Deckard's sitting there. The farmer starts to talk to him. Deckard doesn't say anything. And he goes, well, who are you? Are you a cop? And he just stands up says... Um am uh, Rick Deckard, Blade Runner, and shoots the guy dead. Brilliant! And you're all like, "Fucking!" He's just killed a man. Yeah. And then he pulls back his jaw and he sees it's aluminium and cool. there's a, a serial number on there, and you realise
3: he's a robot. Yeah. A robot. And that's his one regret from the film that it doesn't start with some action.
4: Mm. Um, but like we talked about the sort of the uh, juxtaposition between the high-rise levels and the sort of basement levels, the street levels, um, and how this sort of post-humanist cyberpunk cityscape you you feel like you know it like the back of your hand like it just feels so familiar um, when you think about so William Gibson was writing Neuromancer at the time and then he saw the first 20 minutes of uh, Blade Runner and he's like I'm, I'm done for because everyone's going to think I've nicked it from this mm. but it sort of all came together at the same time um, and Ridley Scott said he was also <laughs> influenced by Hong Kong on a very bad day which is rude but also quite funny <laughs> um, so anyway so, Deckard. We um, I want to talk about this a bit so Hong we- Kong
2: is very much like this. Is it? Yeah, there's uh Lang uh, Lang Lan Kai Fong. Lang Kai Fong. Probably mispronouncing that there's an area, a bar, a, a strip in Hong Kong, which is just full of like like great fun little bars. And either side, just whoosh, massive skyscrapers, like yeah. up to the heavens. And you're sort of really down there, and it rains a lot. And Does you're it? sort of drinking, <laughs> and drinking, it's always dark, yeah, drinking and eating noodles. And the are like,
4: I'm an drummer, <laughs> I'm an
1: employee drummer,
4: good. Uh, so Brian's office. It's only a small scene, but we're establishing uh some plots. So Leon has shot Holden, so Deck is like on the case and he's got to retire these four uh Nexus sixes. But you're in the '40s because you're in an office, and you know a guy walks into my office, kind of thing. You're in an '80s version of 2019. You've got this smash of old and new. In the book, the book was written in '68. They still use paper. They don't have the internet. They still use like a Rolodex and things like that. Which now you'd be like, oh, that's a limitation. But if you just if you draw in the '40s, it's it's fine. Mm-hmm. But then in the '80s, they didn't know the internet was a thing, so it's not anachronistic in that way. But it it just catches up with itself, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. You don't watch it in 2022 and go, why are they using paper? Mm-hmm. It's like, it's fine. It works. It's hermetically sealed within its own design. I think it works perfectly. Anyway. Um, so yeah, he's got a hunt down these four. There's a pejorative term for them called skin jobs.
3: Mm, which the voiceover does explain that that is like using the N-word to us now. Yeah. And that his police chief does use both of those words. And so that's one of the few times where I, f- I feel like the, the voiceover was actually useful. Yeah. In terms of giving me information, but um, not that I need it.
4: Yeah. But if someone said, oh, a skin job is, uh, is rude, you could do that from the character's reaction. Sure. You don't need to be told that. Um. So this, this is a thing that I'd never really understood. So we've got these four replicants, Leon, Zora, Pris and Roy, but they are going to die in four years. And they are, we find out they're towards the end of that lifespan. Mm. That's to give them the device that they're on a mission So Roy wants to meet his maker because he wants to extend his life.
3: Yeah, it gives a ticking clock, doesn't it? A ticking
4: clock. But then it's like, if you could just chase them around for four years, they're just going to die anyway. So does it cancel out the the notion of a Blade Runner?
2: No, not really. Because, again, it's not, even in the final cut, it's not fully explained. But there's an idea that they are on a murder spree because they're trying to get to Tyrell. They want mm. to meet their maker and to meet their maker, they're killing people along the way. So there is a rising body count right. unless he stops them. It's not like, we'll just wait for them to die. Okay. Because they're they're busy doing a lot of slaughtering in the meantime. I see. And they've got a body count already. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it's a really good question and it, it applies to Blade Runner 2049 as well. For example... The, the snake dancer in this, Sapper Morton and Blade Runner 249, they are replicants who just seem to be getting on with their lives and yes. not causing anyone any problem. So it makes them sympathetic victims when Deckard or uh, Kay kill them. Yeah. So it, it, I think that's the important thing that you're like, we've decided that because they have the potential to kill and they're not human, they have to be retired. Yeah. And that's enough to go around hunting them down.
4: <clears throat> I was just thinking as well, like, for all the cyberpunk that came after it and all, you know, I'd just like to slot this in wherever I can. You know, the technological singularity that we'd like to talk about frequently mm, after Ray Kurzweil, yeah. A four or five drinks. Mm. So it's interesting to me that the Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, we are not at a point of technological singularity. Like they took the vision, but they didn't take it to the to its peak because we are still in control of this AI and we're still in control of the, just about in control of the replicants. So technological singularity is where we get to the point where we're defunct because AI overtakes us, and that's not where we are in this. And yet so much of cyberpunk like explores well, that notion. we've lost
3: control because they're killing us.
4: Yes, but they're not... Re- oh, no, but they are reproducing later. So I suppose we're sort of flirting with it. Yeah, yeah it's...
2: Yeah, I, I I, think they I think they have sort of overtaken us, which is why we've built in this idea. I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy on this whole four years thing. So the four years thing is so... At f- they start developing emotions at around the four-year mark, which is why we see Roy exhibiting some emotions at the end because
3: he's very near... So it's like a fail-safe. And and he he finally has humanity at the end. Because he's developed emotions. yeah, Yeah, exactly. And also, that killing spree is important because otherwise... Deckard, Deckard's job is to hunt down slaves and kill slaves. Yes, which is not what you want your hero doing. There's in some a more story.
4: moments coming up where he's not really the hero of this story. No, no, that's, no, that's, that's no, the no, point.
3: Yeah. yeah, and he isn't. I don't think. Is and he?
4: you say that's the point? I don't think that was the intention. I think we can look at it now through a different lens and go, "Oh, that's cool. Your hero's the bad guy." But I don't think that's what they were looking for when they made this. Do you not? No, I, I mean, I think they so- wanted to play around with maybe Roy. It's Roy. It should be Roy's story because I mean, he's got uh, more going on. I think the ending, I think
2: Roy's ending in the way he saves Deckard yeah. uh, is basically positioning him as saving a man who doesn't deserve saving at that point, uh, which makes you side with Roy. So Roy is the hero at that point. So yeah. Deckard never comes out of that encounter, I don't think, as anything other than a little bit of a villain. So I don't yeah. think it's a, it's a hero. I don't think they intended Deckard to be the hero. I think it was always meant to be murky.
4: Okay. Um so IMO are you sure but that's why you're here because <laughs> uh, you've been away so did you read that thing about the Google AI have you read about it no oh my god we'll talk about it just really quickly so Go. someone's gone public to say that Google have created that their AI is now sentient and Google have <laughs> said no it's not you're fired essentially he's on he's on paid leave so it's all got a bit nasty and so the, the Google employee just printed a transcript of a conversation that he'd had with a program and the employee was saying the program in his opinion I think it's a him has the same level of intelligence as a seven to eight year old child so he just published a. Se- there's loads of people saying it, this isn't sentient for other reasons but just just divorce that from your mind a minute mm-hmm. just like, go on the journey where he says to the computer what are you afraid of and the computer says something like this is going to sound silly but I'm, I'm afraid you'll turn me off because this would be like death for me <laughs> what the
2: fuck <laughs> oh what the fuck God. I love it. Oh, my God. I wonder who's in charge of AI at Google. Because didn't (laughs) Elon Musk say, I can't remember the name of the person, but basically there's an AI battle going on in the tech world. And Elon Musk said, if one of the people manages to create AI Mm -hmm. before me and my team do it, it's going to be the end of the world because (laughs) he is an evil person. And if he is the one to create AI, AI will destroy us. Yep. Mm.
4: So I just love it because it's like, oh fuck! Because <laughs> it just happened. Like, is it starting? We all need to get ready. Anyway, um, I know it's awesome.
2: Isn't it? So everyone, turn your Alexis off.
4: <laughs> I don't have one because I'm weird about stuff like that. Oh, Yeah,
3: yeah. I chuck mine two years ago. Yeah, well,
4: I, had, I, t- I-, I told you I didn't get it because it wouldn't recognise my accent, and it was I was just getting like shade every day. So I just I couldn't. I can't have one.
2: I asked Hey Google to play a song three times, and it didn't. I threw it in the garden. <laughs> That's the kind of fun guy I am.
4: You're so easy to live with. Where's the Google thing? In the bin. Because it disrespected
2: me. That's what it was. Genuinely, throughout my life, I've personified technology that doesn't um, agree with me. I, I, I believe it to be Intentionally right, yeah. trying to piss me off. And so right. I take What did you just say to me? I would make a great what blade. Song? Runner. I would I am basically <laughs> I am basically the 2022 version of a, of a Blade Runner. Yeah,
4: all right but then, cool you are. Smash
2: a high fire. <laughs> there you go, Blade Runner.
4: <laughs> Let's talk about Rachel. So Rachel is an Nexus 6, she's a replicant, she doesn't know it. Um she's an experiment, she's had Tyrell's niece's memories implanted to her. So why does Deckard not exterminate her on the spot?
2: Because uh, she is a good replicant. I don't know. Um, hang on a sec, because he's meant to kill
4: all, all replicants. All replicants, yeah. So in the book, she's the property... Oh, it's called the and Corporation. So there's a different... The and Corporation, there's a brilliant scene in the book where he arrives in his police hover car and he, has, he gets no respect and he understands that the and Corporation is more powerful than the police in that moment. So she says, you can't get rid of me. I'm the property of a corporation.
2: I think that's probably it. I think because Tyrell... certainly in the sequel uh, the Wallace Industries uh, has such jurisdiction that it controls the police so I imagine Tyrell has something similar in this but also yeah because all replicants are illegal on earth they have to be off world yes interesting so
4: I don't know why he doesn't do it Uh, my frustration I'll tell you what I do know why he doesn't do it because he wants to shag her first Mm -hmm. we'll come back to that
3: Um, is because she is the next model of replicant um, it takes a hundred questions to figure out if she is a replicant yeah um why couldn't she be less like a replicant? <laughs> because <laughs> the moment <laughs> she walks in, she looks and acts like a fucking robot. <laughs> like I don't understand it.
4: She's—I think she's brilliant. I think Sean Young is amazing. It's such an iconic entrance. But yeah, you're right. You're like she
3: seems more that, like a robot than Rudy Ruka Hauer. Yeah,
4: cold robot, a hundred percent. Yeah. So later, this is this is where it gets knotty and, and more interesting. Um when she turns up at his house, when Rachel turns up at Deckard's house, and so he's really callous. He's like, You're a robot, by the way, because he's got no empathy for how that would make her feel, because he hates replicants. Um but she are you then not a very human being, human being, because you've acted so callously towards something that appears to have emotion? So how can you make that distinction? But then you're very good at your job, so you're used to making the distinction. You don't even probably need to do the Voigt Kampf test. So he's really callous towards it. He acts inhumanly, but he's to his to his mind. Oh, actually, right, so I've got a fun quote from Rutger Hauer from one of the documentaries. Um, he's he's doing that to essentially a piece of machinery, so it, it kind of doesn't matter. Rutger Hauer said of Deckard. Ford's character is dumb. He gets a gun put to his head, fucks a dishwasher and falls in love with it. It makes no sense.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's actually uh, again the scene I keep talking about the hospital scene with Holden, he talks he actually says that. He says to Deckard, you know, you fucked a washing machine and now. Yeah. But he's talking about the snake uh woman. He's saying um about Zora. He's saying, oh, "Did you fuck her? Did you fuck her?" Because you basically fucked a washing machine and then turned it off as in killed her.
4: Yeah. Yeah so this is the this is the thing the the deeper philosophy of is is someone human and how do you know they're human and are we all in a simulation which because the matrix is quite inspired by this and so it all spins off from here but the point of this is from a radio 4 podcast that i listen to when as a human being when you meet another human being you don't walk away from that and cogitate oh yes that person had a soul you just know it and so it's not something that you need to think about if you need to think about it that's that's an issue, but you don't walk away from meeting someone and go, "I think they had a soul." Like you just wouldn't ever think of it like that. So
2: people have done that to me.
4: <laughs> really? <laughs> Was it me? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well done. Well done, Columbo. <laughs> uh,
4: so Leon and Roy just time for a bit of plus, uh, plot, rather. They're on a quest. They want to meet their maker, and they need JF Sebastian as their way in. Um, So, Pris, she tricks her way in to the weirdest, most amazing apartment building you've ever seen in your life. There's no need whatsoever for J.F. Sebastian to make toys and keep toys, apart from the fact that it's thematically perfect. It's the brilliantest smash of old and new that I've ever seen. It looks cool as fuck and it makes it memorable
2: forever.
3: It it looks like Terry Gilliam designed that apartment. It's a very Gilliam-esque room. So very, very, very much. But you know why they used it? is because Ridley Scott loved 500 Days of Summer. It's
1: it's, (laughs) it's the the
3: Bradbury building, which we discussed a few weeks ago. The whole
4: look of that film, it is timeless, Mm. as you said on the episode. (laughs) I did, actually. These kind of those 4 close. clothes.
3: But uh, I looked up Bradbury building, so it's in Chinatown, Wolf, Disclosure. A lot of films we're going to do. Lethal Weapon 4... Pay it forward, what women want, and uh, the artist. We
2: should 100% do what women want. Because I can't remember who it was, because Ridley Scott had never shot in LA before, and he was like, I want to use the Bradbury building. And I can't remember, one of his American uh, co-workers was like, you do not want to use that building. It's been in a shit ton of movies. Please don't put that on camera. And Ridley Scott was like... Not the way I've shot it.
4: What if I put this spooky fucking marionette in it?
3: Uh, it uh, Done. (laughs) That comes up in the Kermode documentary where also Kermode mentions um, that apparently the the Bradbury building um, was inspired by messages that the architect received from an Ouija board.
4: Cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's a movie. Love it. Yep. Um, so at this point, which controversially... Cat
2: noises, don't forget the cat noises, when, when J.F. Sebastian turns around after Pris has convinced him to let her in, and yeah. he, he's still smiling because he's like, ooh, a girl's coming into my apartment. And, <laughs> yeah. and then she looks at him and he goes... Whoa.
4: Bad. Her intentions are bad. Yeah. So this at this point in the... the uh, not theatrical... Director's cut, final cut. Decode has his unicorn dream. Doesn't seem to me much will pay off later, so we'll kind of leave it there for now.
2: Was it? I can't. I couldn't find it. Is it just old footage from Legend? It must have been. Right? It
4: looks it, doesn't it? Because mm. Ridley Scott's obsessed with unicorns. Mm. Was Legend before this? No, no maybe
3: after. not. Oh, okay, but so it, it wasn't footage. It
4: wasn't uh, footage from Legend. But so he say, made, he say, made
2: Legend it. because he shot some unicorn footage for Blade. That runner. way right. That <laughs> way <right>. I <laughs> talked about it on the Legend one. Yeah, that was it. Was it was. I wasn't here. But you listened. Yes, I did. It was great, actually. Thank you. Carry on. (laughs) What was
3: it? Tell me, what what did you say that I've just forgotten from being on that episode? Yeah, test footage that he used on on this was sort of what helped inspire some of the the, the legend stuff. Because he
4: loves unicorns. Um, So Deckard is going to do some detective in. So he ends up at um, Taffy Snake Pit Bar... I think he booty he calls Rachel if I'm being perfectly honest. Totally. Yeah, and she's 100%. like, not interested.
3: That is a shithole. I'm <laughs> not coming down there. <laughs> he's a bit <laughs> yeah. pissed, isn't he? Because yeah. he's had a drink that he didn't want. And yeah. so I think, yeah. Yeah. Duncan Darling.
4: Yeah, of course. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: I was just in this bar <laughs> thinking about you. Yeah, are you,
4: you? want to come down? No. What
2: are you doing? I can see it. It's awful. <laughs> it is an awful place you I'll in. see
4: you later oh. instead. Um, Has he done... Has he done his Oh that's Yeah sorry Yes
2: he has the, done that That's a close up gr- I do like Weirdly, that Weirdly no, I it's, remember it, that scene More than any other scene
3: Almost Yeah in but this it's, movie. I would imagine It's not a very good scene Now if you're a young person Watching this Because you can do Most of that exactly, on your phone yeah. it But, but long, it just It yeah. was in 1981 It was like what It was amazing How's he, how's he looking All around it, a photo It's yes.
2: one of the few things That I remember From watching it As a kid and going Oh my god He zoomed into yeah. a mirror yeah. And yeah.
4: found an image Oh my god Well let's talk about The tech briefly Because again I was watching this When most of the tech was kind of available but video calling smart homes he lets himself into he talks to his own home Uh, pinch zoom kind of what else we don't have hover cars we don't quite have androids we do have other cars. Do Not we? in mass production yet. You've got one. They've got flying taxis that they're trialling
3: in Dubai. Oh, really? There, mm. is, there are sex bots now as well, aren't there? There are sex bots. Yeah. I
4: read that, but I've never
3: seen a sex bot. They're always on, there's always one on the news, some freaky looking <laughs> robot. They go, look at this. Yes. Literally. You I want think,
4: to fuck it? <laughs> I think channel, channel 4 get
3: pitched a sex
2: doll documentary every yeah. other day. They're yeah. massive in Japan.
4: <laughs> of course they are. Yeah. Um, Deco is going to confront Zora, the snake dancer. This is a fun fact. The equivalent scene in the book is that she's an accomplished opera singer. So okay. make of that what you will. <laughs>
2: but so she gets less... from an opera singer in the book to a sexy dancer. book. a this. sexy naked okay. dancer, yeah. Um, it really, really, really still. I, and I remember finding it weird the first time I saw it as a kid. And every subsequent time, it's made me more and more sad
3: watching Zora die. Yeah, it's not good. No. I, I know it's not meant to be, but... But what's her story? She's part of the gang who's it's a slave who's escaped to Earth. Yeah. Why she gone and back and worked in a sex club? Well, this and maybe that's all she can do. But it just struck me as I feel like she wouldn't do that. Because
4: you want to lie low. And
3: interesting as well. She is not listed
2: as uh, when uh, Bryant goes through all the professions of the replicants in the gang at the start. Pris is like your average sort of pleasure model. Mm-hmm. But Zora was part of, in his words, a murder squad. Mm. So she's a soldier, not a
3: pleasure mm. bot. yeah so strange choice. Yeah, it is. But more visually interesting than um, the opera is her dressed as a snake. Sure. Mm.
4: Um, yeah, I guess.
3: <laughs> and, is um, is I, she in a
2: relationship with Leon as well? I couldn't work that out because when he goes to Leon's apartment and retrieves the photos that eventually lead him to Zora, yep. that's Leon's apartment he's in. And Leon yeah. at one point is trying to get those photos back. Yeah. Now, there are photos of him as a child, fake memory photos, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. But I think he's meant to be in a relationship with Zora because he looks heartbroken when he sees her dead.
3: Yeah, maybe so. In which case, good job, Leon. Mm. Um, I want, I want one oh, of that. Go, on, uh, go on, go on. <laughs> is that what time. you meant. Sorry. She's, of course she's you a meant. snake. I thought you meant good yeah. job
4: because you've become yeah. human because you found love. Oh, what's your girlfriend do for a sexy dancer. <laughs> no. She's, she's
3: only. Um, I think you'll find Vicky. She takes pleasure from the serpent that once corrupted man. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Does
4: that mean she sticks a snake? I up think her? so. I think that so. <laughs> <is> so risky. <laughs> I
3: didn't... No, if you're a replicant, you'll <laughs> well, bite that's the. True. It'll bite the snake off. <laughs> that's down true. there.
4: I hadn't thought of it. I want
2: her head
3: and the snake's a replicant as well so you probably program it don't bite me so it is essentially a sex toy alright fine um, question about this scene though why is Deckard doing that voice What do you know what I forgot I almost <laughs> oh, forgot oh god it's horrible this, <laughs> this reminds me of the last crusade exactly. when he plays Scottish yeah, oh, it's, yeah. Like, hey I'm the gang and from, he, does uh... that, he does that voice to the stormtroopers in Star Wars as well he just shouldn't do impressions <laughs> in films <laughs> it's um, so weird and equally in every single sequence these people don't know your normal voice so you can use your <laughs> normal voice um, also I really want the hairdryer.
4: It's so stupid. No, it's not. Does it do her... Ma- right, this is vain. If it does your full face makeup as well, I'm interested. Otherwise, it's just a massive hairdryer and it doesn't take that long to dry that amount of hair. So
3: it looks great. It, it dries it, it in about five seconds. Yeah, it looks yeah. like a right laugh. It's like yeah. the hairdryers we've
2: got now, actually. The hand-dryers and the lose. The truth is, it would not look quite so good on the other side of drying your hair like that. If, you, if I went into one of those, I would, I would come out and look mad, I'd look You'd like a volume. mad person That's, I wonder what I I'd look like after one of them got beard, <laughs> huge, <laughs> massive beard
4: yeah, like a scouring pad <laughs> bang
2: <laughs> um I can't get my pint near
4: my face. <laughs> Just so <sewing.
2: laughs> <Just boing>. easy. <Boing. laughs> <laughs> Chris, pints bounced off
3: again. <laughs> Actually, it was a bit like that in lockdown when I let it grow out. It was huge. Yeah, no, it was huge. Um, bizarre. So, um, but he shoots Zora in the back. And I, as I said, I did watch the theatrical cut. Um, we do get a bit of voiceover God, from him sake. here saying um, he doesn't feel good about shooting a woman in the back.
4: That, that's the sort of voiceover that makes me <laughs> see red. Like, yeah. Harrison, you're an actor. Yeah. Can you look sad? Yeah. Definitely. OK, you look sad now. Brilliant. It's but in the can. Let's remember go. Remember
2: Ridley Scott's directing, so he wouldn't have said any of that to Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. He'd have been adjusting a bit of glass on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, so, so what I'll do I do really in the What do <laughs> I do <really laughs> <see> Ridley? Shh, 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 Doing the glass. <laughs> but this is, this is Ridley Scott's whole thing. Ridley Scott, like when I interviewed him for Exodus, and I was like, why would you pick Christine Bale for this role and, and, and Joel Edgerton for this role? And he was like, basically, I just want actors who know what the fuck they're doing so I can concentrate on every other element in the scene mm-hmm. not an actor's director no he just likes you know and his scene I mean this is this is the movie where you understand that about him as director because every scene is a work of art every scene is perfect yeah the
4: ashtrays are placed so well perfectly beautifully placed ashtrays I agree Um so but yes yes Harrison Ford does look a bit upset irrespective of any voiceover therefore he's not a replicant because we need to start talking about that because obviously in the theatrical it's like no he's not and then later on Ridley Scott's decided yes he is he's not in the book so that's his thing
2: Uh, so the thing is he could be upset because he's certainly not a Nexus uh, 6 replicant Mm -hmm. so he could be an advanced model which we'll talk about on Thursday but certainly he's a, a if he's a replicant, mm-hmm. he could be a replicant with an open-ended lifespan. Well, which it has the, to be, because otherwise of course, the
4: sequel doesn't work. Of well, course, but he
2: could still be a replicant and exhibit emotions because we don't know what his model is capable of. He's not a Nexus 6. Yeah. Because Rachel exhibits emotion yes. as well, and she is definitely it, a replicant. If he's a superior model, why is he so weak? It's a good question, but that could be to fit in more with humans, like, as in, you know, like in the sequel, why, why, why can replicants drown? But he's up. Yeah, but, but,
4: but why do it, they have blood? Why do they have bones? But What's if the he, point? but but the point because is, because they're
2: not robots, they're genetically built, so they, you know, it's DNA, it's replicating DNA. Oh, but if he
3: is a replicant, he's been built to to kill, stop and kill replicants. So yes. why would they make him much weaker than them? That's true. That's a. Very it doesn't quite make sense. I mean, where I was at is, I don't think anyone really thought Decker was a replicant when this film came out. I certainly didn't. Um, Ridley Scott did. I was a child. No, I'm getting there. 92, it was all about he's a replicant now. (laughs) And the people that worked on the film, a lot of them have said, uh, Ridley Scott wants to rewrite history now. At the time, he was not saying this. He was not claiming this. This is something he has gone back and sort of said was always baked into it. Whereas actually, no, there was always ambiguity baked into it. And this is what upset um, Harrison Ford, a lot Mm. of people involved with the film, that he's taken away the ambiguity by saying from 92 onwards... It's a definite and it always has been Yeah, when that's not how Harrison Ford played it. And it actually makes his, it gives him no arc. He's got a very good arc otherwise, um, Mm -hmm. uh, Harrison Ford's Deckard. So I can see the frustration. It's so interesting, though, the fact that through all these interviews, it's about 50-50 for the people who made the film what they think, which is Mm. fantastic, I think. I mean, it makes it more interesting.
2: Yep. And the sequel carries on that, doesn't it? They still don't provide us with any answers.
3: Yeah. Oh God, let's not talk about the sequel yet.
2: But what did what did what did Ridley Scott say on the two thousand and seven commentary? He goes he goes, He's a replicant and if you don't realise that you're a fucking moron. <laughs> Harrison Ford. <laughs> well, Harrison Ford. Someone told him that line. I think it was a GQ interview he did. Someone said Ridley Scott says this and he's like he's like, you know, I'm happy to be a moron. Morons pay to get in. Still don't know what that means. What does that mean? I've no idea.
4: Moron. You
2: kind of want to believe Harrison Ford hasn't just put some words together and actually knows <laughs> what it means, but he actually says, morons pay to get in. Cool. <laughs> in the in the same interview, Ridley Scott goes, the thing about Harrison is he just doesn't tolerate people very well because he's so intelligent. Morons pay to get in.
4: <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. So uh, next to dies is Leon, um, but then Rachel saves Rick, um, and she's got on a silly coat on so we're just sticking with this silly coat theme so this is the big thing I want to talk about so we all go back to his place and um, uh, Deckard has a nap while Rachel plays the piano
2: carefully timed nap when she goes have you ever oh. taken the Voigt-Kampff test? <laughs> <laughs> wow, because that would have actually been a really useful maybe, answer. Maybe he's programmed to go to sleep when everyone asks him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Except that if if other people knew that, if replicants he was hunting knew that and he was about to shoot them and he go, Voigt-Kampff test! <laughs> I'm
3: gonna, I'm, uh, this is going to become relevant on Thursday, but a friend of mine interviewed Harrison Ford and asked him about The Force Awakens and Harrison Ford just pretended to go to sleep in the interview. Right. Oh, yeah. Just shut his eyes and started snoring. Cool. Rude. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You should there's a there's a thing where the GQ people this I, I did this big deep dive on this GQ interview it was for Blade Runner 2049 which is why I was doing it and there's a video of him answering questions and clearly they the person interviewing him is off camera but they've just not done their research about what Harrison Ford will talk about <laughs> and so they've had to put Harrison Ford legend star of this star of that man of few words on screen to <laughs> oh, sort of no. ex like go we were in control of this and that the reason he goes no. Oh no. Yeah. To their question like which do you prefer, Han Solo or Indiana Jones? I don't know. That's it. That's your answer. Okay. Great video.
4: <laughs> Great content, guys. So Rachel is. You know, leaving. I don't have any time
2: for Harrison Ford. No, I know. I, I had this experience.
4: I know, and I, it's a shame. I, I do think about it a lot. I lost.
2: I lost a lot of childhood movies. Yeah. Never meet your idols.
4: Never meet your idols, and I, I will never meet him. So I, but I get it for you too. That it's been. You've met him, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we talk about it on Thursday. It's a horrible experience. Well, no,
2: Chris had a great time with him.
4: No, is that true? Yeah. It's just you. He's got beef with. Yeah,
2: no, me and everyone else. Chris is special. Wow. Chris is the one who he goes. Like Keanu Reeves for I, you. I like you, kid. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you, you can are, stay.
2: You
3: don't ask dumb questions like the rest of the. Well, one people. of the days I interviewed, I was told afterwards by the the people running the room that I was the only person that made him smile and laugh
4: in his whole life. <laughs> in the day, across <laughs> wow. across eight hours. <laughs> Does his wife know? God. Well, that's amazing. Good for you. Have you watched Ali McBeal? I'm fucking hilarious. <laughs>
2: Um, That's a Calista Flockhart impression there.
4: It was really good. I dug
2: deep. <laughs> you watch fucking Ali We've been here a long time, Alex. Please stop.
4: You're nervous because I'm about to say that Rick Deckard is a rapist and so you don't want to talk about oh, it. Oh, no, I've actually I actually
2: dug up loads on this because okay. it's even worse when you read the stories behind it. But go on.
4: So, uh, Rachel's trying to leave. He throws her against the window and then he coerces her. So he, he tries to validate it in his head, I think, by making her say things that he wants to hear. Um... So that it could be thought that she's kind of asking for it, because he says he makes her say "kiss me," and then off we go.
2: Do it again. Say this again. Say this
4: again. So I thought, right? Let's take. Let's look at it one way. It could be from the noir where you have that sort of thing going on, and it's kind of passes unmentioned because it was a different time. Quote marks. It could be a very blunt way of exploring how he feels about replicants. Uh, But this is coming off the back of a scene where he shot a woman in the back. So it's two negative beats for your ostensible Whether your hero is a bad guy or whatever, but your protagonist. Um, But also is you know she's not real so his attitude might be you can do what you want
3: she's a dishwasher can you sexually assault a dishwasher
4: Fine, i understand that but then why do you want her to want it if she's a dishwasher what does it matter if she's essentially a sex toy why do you want her to want it so
2: well that's why you have these send these sex toys that go give it to me oh do that because that's what they do they have sex toys that dolls that actually talk back to the person having sex with them because right. they it makes it more real
4: Okay. Okay.
2: More human than human.
4: Okay. So, but she doesn't want it, and so then you're, you, Rick Deckard, you're so desperate to think that any of this is real that you're making her say what you want to hear, even though you know she isn't real. Like, what? what's it? So it's very knotty and complicated. But I just think in terms of so, well, look, looking at it its most basic level, script-wise, two negative beats for your protagonist is not a good idea.
2: I think uh, reading around it, it sounds awful as well, because Harrison Ford didn't apparently like Sean Young very much on this shoot and hadn't spoken to her hardly at all in the build-up to this scene. And then they shoot this scene and... Um, it's just not a nice. It's it's when he throws her against the wall, she actually hurt her back, and the like. The tears were real. She. Brilliant. Like, it's it's a, it's quite an unpleasant scene to watch, and it's quite an unpleasant scene to read about.
4: Yeah, um, she said. Sean Young said in an interview, twenty two, maybe or twenty one. Uh, Ridley Scott wanted me to date Harrison and I never would I was like nah (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I quite like Um, but she thinks it was Ridley Scott sort of directing the scene like that as a fuck you to her for not I don't know not getting on with Harrison Ford which is all her fault apparently and like that to me is so it's so upsetting it's so gross like it if did- that's true, you've directed that scene as as a sort of revenge, and then you've gone home and just thought, "Oh, it was a good day's work." I wouldn't.
2: I mean, I, I I don't know. It's impossible to say, but yeah, that could really be a possibility. What did she say? She said, "Young said I did hit my back pretty hard, and I did cry a lot, but I think it was
3: exactly what Ridley wanted." Lovely. It's like that scene in Rocky we talked about, though. scene? where, where, where Adrian tries oh, to yeah. leave the apartment, he mm. goes and shuts the door, and
4: oh, yeah, I hated that. Mm. Yeah. We, all, we all did. Yeah. It,
2: it was amazing. I watched this with my mum and she was like, oh, that's not good. This isn't nice. No. This is an unpleasant scene. Yeah. Mm.
4: And I've got, there's another way of doing it, but we'll get to it later, where you still get some sort of weird voyeurism, but it's not, it's just not as nasty. So um, let's meet the good guy of the movie, Roy again. Hooray. So he's at JF's place. Um,
3: not acting like a good guy, if I'm honest. No. I mean, I think that's the brilliance of the end of this film. He's actually. Horrible, frightening, evil, intimidating all the way through this movie. But because he gets that last scene, mm. you fall in love with him. But I mean, he's torturing this guy p- pretty much.
4: Yes. Yeah, yes. he's,
3: he's it's, mentally and then physically. You're absolutely right. It's a massive
2: switcheroo from like gouging people's eyes out to going, look at this dove.
4: Yeah, <laughs> he acquires the dove, doesn't he? So uh, Roy needs to get to Tyrell for these four years or up. Um so, what well, he gets to ascend, he goes up up the pyramid to meet his maker. I think the dialogue's amazing. Mm. So when Tyrell says to him, like, what seems to be the problem? And he says death. It's like,
3: that's brilliant. There's so many good lines. I want more life. Um, I want more life. So, uh, what line did you hear in your version here? He says, I want more life. Mm. Uh, in my version, he says, I want more life, fucker.
4: No. no. I didn't, there wasn't ah, there. No. Ah, Interesting.
3: Which is a quite an—it's quite an unexpected line. Oh, and he calls I calls him father. I was going to say there's a version I believe where he says, "I want more life, father." That's what he said in the which, one I heard. Which yeah. is an interesting, which is different to what was originally said then. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. A, it's it's weird. It's, it's, it's much would, more of a cartoon villain. I prefer him saying father though, because yeah. also it's, it 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 works, doesn't it? Thematically, where fucker—it's just weird seeing him say fucker, to be honest. And every time I watch this, I forget that he kills JF Sebastian
2: because you don't see it on screen. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's
4: yeah. So sad. Well, the thing is, so just to delve into the morals no philosophy of it a little bit isn't being human only possible when you know that there is a limit that so you know you're going to die if you read, so Terrell says to Roy uh the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long but that's true for all human beings like our, our lifespan is whatever it is but it could be twice that but once you once you actually understand on a bodily level rather than an intellectual level that you are going to die you do tend to kick things up a gear and try and live your life within its limits but try and live fully. So to want to never die doesn't that negate the idea of becoming human? That it's quite a robot thing to want because the fact that we die is what makes life He doesn't what want it is. to
2: not die though. He just wants more than four measly years. Sure. That's all it is. He's like four years isn't enough, you know. He's only just started to experience the emotions that okay. are seeping through so yeah. as those emotions hit him and he becomes more human yeah. and he wants to experience that for longer
3: yeah and and does he
2: blame sebastian for his plight at all I think anyone who says the words
3: "I was involved in making you" is pretty much dead in this movie. Right? <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Because because if it was just about getting to Tyrell, then it's quite cruel to then kill Sebastian after the fact. Yeah. Yep. But if it's if it's a, it's got deeper meaning to him, then I guess it makes sense.
4: But also because he's realised he's not going to get what he wants, and so he I think he thinks, well, fuck it then, because he obviously quite quite enjoys it. Killing someone when he so these are Hampton Fancher's words. He puts his master's eyes out. Doesn't have to do it like that. Can kill him any way he wants. So there's pleasure in that. And then I think he thinks Roy thinks he's not going to get his life extension. So he's just going to go after JF Sebastian because he enjoys it.
2: I think the eyes thing as well, is blinding him because obviously it's biblical. Neander Wallace is blind in the sequel, and I think it's to do with these these huge sort of like tech moguls that uh, are these characters just being blind to uh, the potential of what replicants could be and just seeing them as a
3: slave labour force. It's also another example of what a bad cop... Deckard is a bad Blade Runner because he should have gone to Sebastian he should have figured this out followed this trail he should be there before Sebastian shouldn't be dead as it is I'm not even sure he knows who Sebastian is when it comes over the radio that Sebastian's been killed Mm. Yeah, so he's just not very good at his job
4: yeah Um, so we go back to J.F. Sebastian's and again just to spend more time in that apartment I love that so there's a thing in the book called Kipple do you know about Kipple? So because it's a post-apocalyptic, so it's a post-war environment and um, there's just stuff everywhere, so it's called Kipple and people are really scared of Kipple, excuse me. Well, (laughs) Kipple
2: is just the junk in his apartment. Yeah, so it's stuff that's
4: become useless. But because the world is empty, that's what's different about Blade Runner, this film version and the book. In the book, there are not very many people left because the war has displaced everyone. So everyone's basically gone to Mars and on Earth there aren't that many people. What war? Uh, it's called the Inter-Nations War. Okay, it's not explained who it is. It's just a big bad war on Earth. And this is in the book, though, not in the this film. This is in yeah, the book, isn't it yeah. called World War Terminus? Yes, it is. That is what it's yeah. called. There we go. Um, so everyone's gone even to read Mars. The book. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: just pulled that out of thin air.
4: Yeah, <laughs> just a guess. <laughs> you want a name
2: for your movie, Blade Runner, mate?
4: <laughs> you can have that. <laughs> so anyway, there's Kipple everywhere because there's no people, and so people are scared of like. It's entropy. They were aware that when they're gone, the world will just, everything will just degrade and the, you know, organic sort of plants will take over and all the rest of it. So people are scared of stuff. And in this version, JF Sebastian's apartment, it's true to the version of the book in that there's kipple everywhere. Right. I quite liked that. Um,
2: and he can't go off world because of his. Uh Genetic disease. His yeah,
4: his glands. So in the book, it's the, the it's, it's a pejorative term, but he self identifies. He's got. He's called Ji Isadore. He calls himself a chicken head because he's got uh, mental limitations, and so he's not allowed to go. Right. Um, and so there's a substrata of human beings that aren't allowed to go. Because I always thought Off World wasn't pleasant, but in both
3: these movies, Off World is paradise. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, we're told it's paradise. Okay. I think there might be a story to be told Off World when actually maybe that isn't the truth. Oh, you don't you have, have to do that. that.
2: Soldier did that. Paul W S Anderson already handled that in his film Soldier. That's which a, was a sequel, wasn't it? It was a, a it was sidequel.
3: Hampton Fancher wrote it, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hampton
2: yeah. Fancher wrote it. Uh, Ridley Scott exec produced and oh, there, uh, directed a few scenes as well. That's and it was uh, a disaster. that's Soldier, 1998 Soldier, directed by Ridley. Scott.
4: Great, thanks Alex so professional (laughs) (laughs) so anyway
3: this David is, Peoples did write his Sorry, though. David Peoples, yeah. Oh, I thought you were doing a joke. No. Oh, yeah. No. One of Dave, them did. David Peoples. David Peoples. <laughs> David Peoples come on, we're so close that. to the end.
4: All right, so this is what we came for. We want the show. <laughs> Here
2: we go. We were, <laughs> We've hit the one hour, 15 minute mark. Dad's come out.
4: It's, I'm really hot. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. It's the beard. <laughs> <laughs> so we need a showdown between our uh, rapey hero and a man just trying to get by, mm. just, just trying to live.
3: Yeah, if Deckard's a replicant, he drops his gun a lot in this film. <laughs> Surely they haven't built that into replicants that you can't hold a gun.
4: <laughs> uh, so Roy's facing face in the end. He starts howling like a wolf. He drives a nail through his hands. So the first time I watched this, I was like, you do that because you're trying to keep yourself present because this is, I'm an idiot. So he's reaching the end and obviously pain brings you to your senses. But then again, when you're reading around it, it's like, or oh, is it because he thinks he's Jesus? And so it's stigmata. I
2: don't know. Yeah, he's yeah. I think he's more meant to be. I thought Lucifer, ha- isn't okay. he? He's he's like he's he's Milton's Lucifer. He's the fallen angel who's returned to uh,
3: take vengeance on his master, yeah. God thought, in this case Tyrell. I thought it was his sort of limbs um, limb seizing up. And that yeah. it, it was it was the end of his life, but also I mean it does draw a parallel between the two of them because they both injure their hands. And yes, in this fight, yep. so that's quite.
4: I think the fight is good. I love crashing through the apartment because like the apartment, I like the fact that Roy is naked. But then it upsets me when I notice he's wearing trainers and socks. So it's like if you're gonna be naked, take it all off. Don't just leave your socks on because there's glass. He's, he's not, not totally the floor.
2: naked. He's got. Oh, he's got pants on, tight shorts.
4: Yeah. yeah, but do you know what I mean? Like, why is he got his shoes and socks sock? on? I, I
2: think it's a strong look. I mean, you close your eyes, as I often do. Is that do, what and you think, look like on and, holiday? I and think Roy Batty, and I'm like, yeah, naked guy apart from very tight shorts and if it's ice bit, white socks, if, ice white shoes. He's Alan Partridge.
4: <laughs> <laughs> ice white socks,
2: ice white shoes.
3: If it's this hot, if it's this hot, jumper right over the shoulders. I'm wearing that.
4: Are you? Okay, cool. That's Totes.
3: Nice. Well, you won't be here. Oh yeah. Oh, spoiler oh, alert. Oh, yeah, oh sorry. Come
4: on. <laughs> sorry. So anyway. Um... So, Roy, you can't stave off the end. And this is fun. So, although Deckard hates him, he has to listen to him, which is good because um, Roy's dying speech is impressive for a human, but let alone a robot. Alex, you've already done a very fine impression of it at the top of the show, so I won't do it again. Oh, no, no, really?
3: No, no need. Don't, don't absolutely give it no shot. need. Don't give it a shot.
2: <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's interesting when you read the versions uh, and how it changed, obviously, from the initial version that Peoples wrote to then his new version that he wrote to the version that Rutger Hauer actually cut down and did himself the Mm. one that we see in the movie Mm. it is tremendous what Rutger Howard did to that speech Um, I'm I'm not going to bore you by reading them now but you should look them up online the original speech that he was given that he cut down for example, he says, uh, I've seen things, seen things you little people wouldn't believe, which just changes the whole thing as opposed mm. to I've seen mm. things you people wouldn't believe because he's like, he's mm. self aggrandizing. He's talking down to yeah. you and you wouldn't love him as much if he said, You little people talking mm. about humans. But then
4: doesn't love say that in 2049? Doesn't that come back? Doesn't she say, You little people? Possibly. Maybe. I can't remember. Um, so anyway, it's all over for Roy and then Gaff is back. And he's talking about Rachel to Deckard. He says, it's too bad she won't live, but then who does? Which I love that. Uh, Mm. That's a brilliant line. She's not dead. She's just sleeping with her clothes over her head. The little tease. Weirdo. Yep.
2: <laughs> Odd thing to do who does that. No one. Oh, that should be the test. Don't, don't do a voigt Kampf test. Watch them sleep. Yeah. she has got a covers over her head. Replicant. <laughs> right there. The one with the covers over the head. That one. That would be a great test at the start. If Leon had walked in and Holden had just tucked a sheet over him. And he'd See have gone, he'd done. He'd gone, oh, it's lovely.
4: Oh, dead. replicant. Dead. dead. So the man who hates replicants asks a replicant, do you love me? Do you trust me? And then they make their escape. Who are they escaping from? Just, I've forgotten. They're on the run. From who? She's Well, Gaff.
3: I think Gaff is one of them, and yeah. because why has Gaff put that origami unicorn out there? Am is... I gonna get you? Yeah, I'm fucking with you. Well, yeah. yeah. What is he saying there? Is he saying she's a unicorn? She's one of a kind. She's one of the next models. She won't die. Is he saying she's not one of those people? She's gonna die. I'm letting you go because she's the end is nigh for her. Or obviously yes. with the with the dream version, is he saying? I know that you're I know that you're a replicant. But
2: even if he is saying I know you're a replicant, it's not necessarily a threat. Yeah. He's he's actually if if Ford hadn't if Deckard hadn't worked it out at that point, he's actually giving him a nudge over the side edge and going, "Look, go and be happy because you're yeah. a replicant too."
4: That's what I think. I don't think it's a sad ending. I'm surprised that people found it so, so much of a downer. In the 80s, Gaff's
2: a bit of an enigma to me. Like I don't know whether he hates Deckard or he respects Deckard or he knows something about Deckard that Deckard doesn't Deckard doesn't know if Gaff is a replicant himself. I just like cuz he's a blade runner as well. Mm. I'm assuming. I don't think it's ever said like outright, but Gaff, I do, I don't know what to make of him.
4: No, I don't.
3: Which oh, is so great. It's quite
4: fun in a noir sense, yeah. sort of
3: mystery helper. Well, people in the eighties didn't like the ending because it was a happy ending. They they thought it was too happy.
4: Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, because
3: they're going off into this suddenly we're seeing this beautiful landscape. Yeah. And the, the 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 ending they originally had was, was those elevator doors closing. But them going off into the sunset, uh, I think um Ridley Scott since said it was people just thought it was improbable. Mm. It just it just seemed to undermine this story we were telling.
4: You undermine the world. You've been so in that world and the world is dark and so suddenly being, you know, sunlight, it's... It's um, the
2: visuals. It's the visuals that spoil it because you just like, this feels like it's
3: cut from a different film entirely. Which it is. Yeah. So So, uh, just a couple of bits though on that original 82 version. um, After the amazing speech... From Rutger Hauer, we get voiceover.
4: Yeah, we do. I've got the voiceover. <laughs> do you want to say it then? Yeah, I can't believe how. Just hang on. Just who let me scroll through my vo- millions Voice
2: Voiceover and... from who? Rutger Hauer?
3: No, Deco. No. Oh, right. The Deco, Deco
4: voiceover. brackets voiceover. I don't know why he saved my life. Maybe in those last moments, he loved life more than he ever had before.
3: Which is exactly what Harrison Ford's face is telling us and what Rutger Hauer's just telling us.
4: Not just his life, anybody's life, my life. All he'd wanted were the same answers the rest of us want. Oh, fuck me. Where did I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do was sit there and watch. Him die. All I could do from that point on, that's great. But I mean, talk about fucking smashing someone over the it's head. The, with it's it. the,
3: it's, the, it's honestly the worst bit, because I, I as I say, I watched the actual cut this week. It's the worst bit of um voiceover in the movie because it just ruins yeah. that moment of stillness and beauty. Mm. Yeah. Um, but we also get voiceover in this very final scene when that when the doors close um on, on the elevator, Deckard says Gaff had been there and let her live. Four years, he figured he was wrong. Tyrell had told me Rachel was special. No termination date. I didn't know how long we'd have together. Who does? And it's just, again, it's just, I mean, they got rid of all of it. They got rid of the voiceover and the imagery eventually. And I think it's a much, a vastly improved ending. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, you got a feel for Harrison Ford, though.
2: Like, it sounds awful. Like, when he was presented with the voiceover that was written by neither of the writers who'd worked on it, and he's in a voiceover booth, and initially Bud Yorkin was there, and then on the final time, where they were like, this is going to be the version, it was just him... And the guy who'd written the voiceover (laughs) and Harrison Ford says there was was no one to turn to, to go, can we maybe think about this? Because it was just me and him and he wasn't going to budge on what he'd written. And so
3: I just had to read it. And I read it five times and said, pick what you want and And, left. And and the point is, the voiceover was there in Hampton Fancher's script. Initially, there was voiceover. There was one in David People's scripts. They had voiceovers that they eventually excised. And those were subtle voiceovers that weren't really giving you information they were setting the scene like 1940s noir voiceovers and then what it changed into, they got rid of it and then they decided they need it at the last minute. That TV writer came in and it suddenly was explaining stuff. Mm. Yeah. And that's the issue. Of it's course. just, you Ooh. know, it's treating the audience like it's an idiot.
2: Hello, idiots. Yes. Let me tell you what's going on. She's going to live forever and we're quite <laughs> happy. Roy was happy as well at the end. Did you get that? Bye-bye. Yes,
3: that's exactly in, it. In that, in that Kermode interview, at uh, the end, He's really Scott says, when Harrison's on his piano, he's a bit drunk. We go into the unicorn. That was the only reference to this abstract image. Uh, Then he finds the unicorn on the floor at the end. Kermode says, what does that mean? Scott says, it means he's a replicant. Mm. Yeah. Simple as. Moron. (laughs) It means
2: he's a replicant, Mark, you moron. (laughs) How have I not been clear about this? He's a fucking replicant.
4: (laughs) Uh, That's it. Would you like to do the bits? For sure. Brilliant. Uh, Chris, what would you say your best scene
3: was? (laughs) Time to die. I mean Do you like that <laughs> Uh no the bit the time to die at the end. Um yeah it's 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 really House speech. Yeah. Okay. Oh I thought you meant yeah, Leon. Leon. Yeah. Not Leon saying that. There's
2: a sample used on a popular itself song called uh, Wake Up Time to Die. Yeah. Wake up time to die (laughs) Uh, mine is uh, absolutely Roy Batty speech at the end I genuinely I cried this time it's always hit me but this time I don't know what's happened maybe because I understand the movie better being a bit more grown-up you'd think Uh, but genuinely tears real tears it's such a beautiful moment
4: it is also my
2: best scene it's the visuals that he creates like you are sort of there with him you are witnessing in your
3: head however you imagine it attack ships ablaze off the shoulder of Orion yeah And I will say, I know you talked about Philip K. Dick seeing footage and liking Rachel, but um, the the editor said he showed him an early cut of the film, uh, which was just before Dick died. He died just before the film came out. And he said at the end of it, Philip K. Dick turned to him and said, how is that possible? This feels exactly like what I had in my head when I wrote it, Mm. which is a lovely thing that they all got to hear before because Philip K. Dick had hated this film so much, you know, that he, he wasn't involved. He called it Get Smart with Robots. He, he just, he hated it. And then the, the fact that he saw it and loved it before the end, I think means a lot. Mm.
4: Yeah, I think it's very generous as well. It's a, Obviously, it's a brilliant film, but I think if you were a writer, <clears throat> you have every right to kind of expect, you may be wrong, but you would expect that a film adaptation of your book would look like your book, as in terms of would have the key story beats, and it absolutely does not. Mm. Not, I mean, I know we joked about there being no electric sheet, but the beats the beats are no the beats are broadly the same but the whole story is completely different and you would be like oh okay did you not like any of that stuff like mm. what you've done is lift the central conceit and That's kind it. of do what you want with it which yeah. one do
3: you think is the better story
4: um i think that
3: the i think the film is the
4: best story okay yes i do Good. all right so you are most valuable whatever alex so much
2: of me does want to go for Rutger Hauer. for uh, the 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 work that he says was minimal that he did he just cut down the big speech at the end and added, like the one contribution he says he made was, I added all those things, all those memories will be lost. Like Tears in the Rain. That was his edition, which arguably is the best part about the speech. But I'm not giving it to Rutger Hauer because I gave him his speech as the best scene. Uh, It's a combination of Ridley Scott, concept artist, visual futurist Sid Mead, uh, production designer Lawrence G. Paul, art director David Snyder, uh, Douglas Turnbull and Richard Eurich, special effects supervisors, Mark Stetson, the chief model maker, basically everyone who had a part in realising Los Angeles 2019, as we see it in that film. Everyone who had a part in that, I guess mainly Ridley Scott and Sid Mead because they came up with the visuals and what they wanted to do. But it's just, it's just the most beautiful, beautiful world. I played a lot of, um, it's a role-playing game uh, called Shadowrun uh, when I was a teenager. And it's set in this cyberpunk kind of world. And for all of us playing that game, when you imagine it in your head, you are imagining Blade Runner. Mm. And it gave us that. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. So that is my vo- most vo- valuable, whatever.
4: That's lovely. What about you?
2: Uh, shout out to
3: James Hong. We didn't mention oh, him. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's here. yeah. yeah. As, I just do eyes. As, as, <laughs> as Hannibal Chu. Um, so I had Sid Mead down and then I read that Cinefastique uh, Cine Fantastic article from 82 and projections designer Lawrence Paul is absolutely apoplectic with the rage that Sid Mead is taking all the credit for everything. <laughs> and he wow. said this was a team effort. I did a lot. My team did a lot. It wasn't all this guy. So I've dropped Sid Mead and I'm going to pick... Rooker Hauer. (laughs) Uh, Because it does elevate the movie, what he brought to it at the end. And it's interesting, that quote um, that you mentioned about him talking about the dishwasher, Mm. um, he goes on to say, he sort of slags off Harrison Ford a bit, which I think is quite interesting. He says, um, his role didn't seem to fit him. He couldn't make it fit. If he had been stronger, I would not have been so shiny. So he blames the success of his performance on Harrison Ford. Being a bit shit. (laughs) Yes. Cool. (laughs) Classic Hauer.
4: So my MVW zeroes in because i just thought i can because i want to um and it's just literally jf sebastian's apartment everything i love about this film is in that apartment (laughs) so um the smash of the old and the new the dilapidation the degradation the grandeur the glamour the fucking weirdness the unnecessary attention to detail everything i like about this film is in that
3: and a man getting strangled between Daryl Hannah's thighs. Forgot
4: about that. Mm. That's a big oh, complaint for me. Like, I just
3: her death.
2: Priss's death is nasty. Where she she's a that... fucking
4: idiot. If you flip at someone, exposing your major organs, they're mm. going to get a shot in. Like, it's ridiculous.
2: Yeah, she's a pleasure model though, so she wasn't prepped for combat.
4: Why does she know gymnastics? Oh wait, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clear
2: the cogs, turning there. Well, let's go top shelf at the just after this. I'll show you some things. Razzle a clock. <laughs>
4: yeah alright then uh, alright one change top shelf
2: it <laughs> <laughs> carry on uh, I'm working
3: on a catchphrase <laughs> top shelf okay fine right come what's on we've change? been in 90 sorry, minutes sorry sorry
4: what's your change you Chris you
3: you doing um, fast as well I kind of touched on this earlier but I think you've got to make Rachel a more interesting character. She's the next model. Make her charismatic. Make her funny. Make her likeable. make I know i I've got no idea why he's in love with her. Yeah. His arc at the end is he finds his humanity through his love for her. Mm. But I don't see why he's in love with her. She's just nothing. She's just this vessel. And so I think it's a big flaw with the movie because I don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. <clears throat> Unless you watch a sequel called Bless. Runner 2049
2: which then talks about the fact that he may have been designed programmed created by Tyrell to fall in love with Rachel because he's a replicant so there's that argument what's your change my change is uh, there's a scene and I've mentioned it three times and why not have it as the change because I do think the final cut is a beautiful movie it's a perfect movie in my opinion apart from the Holden hospital scene where Deckard visits him in the hospital it provides just so much more fascinating ideas around the idea of humans, these replicants. And Holden is very vicious about replicants. He's disgusted by them and he's threatened by them. And Deckard isn't so much. And they have a very interesting conversation while he's in this machine. It's a beautiful shot as well. It's online. You should watch it. And I really want that scene back in because there's also a bit of that scene where Gaff and Bryant are watching Deckard have this conversation with Holden and then they talk about what Deckard's saying in a a way that makes you sort of, it it doesn't answer any questions, but the ambiguity it delivers,
3: you can tie it to certain interesting themes. But doesn't it undermine the story if the machine isn't working? Which machine? The camp machine. Didn't you say that in that scene? He says that he wasn't getting the right readings from the machine.
2: Oh no, but the, the the suggestion there is that Leon, because he's this advanced model, like Holden says, the machines can't even tell anymore because they've become so human. They're right. basically here to replace us. But that doesn't that undermine it working
3: on Rachel then. But it takes a hundred and whatever questions. Right. Sure, no, fair enough.
4: Uh, we've we've got to change that sex scene because so it's not good. So here we go. So Rachel, she's a robot. She realises she has desire, which therefore makes her human. But she has desire for a man who's been mean to her because he very casually told her she's a robot. Confliction, okay? Then you've got a man who doesn't know he's a replicant, desiring a replicant. Why? Conflict. There you go. That's it. That's the sex scene. No more rape. No, agreed. Sexy. <laughs> you agreed. can make that sexy. I could just
2: hear you read that. <laughs> <laughs>
4: uh, um. Oh, if I have known, I would have done it differently. Yeah, but yeah. yeah.
2: there's audio cassettes and the newsagents. Top self-fits. <laughs> I'll add proper I'll top shelf
3: stuff. I'll add that during my research, I found out that they storyboarded a scene with a gorilla in a business suit working as a bouncer. So get that in.
4: Right.
2: Yep. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
3: okay. I mean, it's Rabbit. quite Roger Rabbit,
4: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. I think that's it.
3: All right, we're done. Do you want to do a quiz, Chris? Yes, and right. I have a feeling this one might be a draw. Uh, Alex, first question is directed to you. Great. Someone great give... in there. <laughs> Someone gives you a calfskin wallet for your birthday. How, how do you react? Uh, I I refuse to
2: take the gift because I am appalled that an animal would have been used to make something like a wallet. Okay, uh, within cells
3: interlinks, Vicky. <laughs> Your little boy shows you his butterfly collection plus the killing jar. Yes. What do you say?
4: I take him to the doctor.
3: Within cells interlinked. (laughs) Alex, uh, you're watching television. Suddenly you spot a wasp crawling on your arm. How do you react? I kill it (laughs) with cells interlinked. Kill it. (laughs) Vicky while walking along a desert sand you suddenly look down and see a tortoise crawling towards you you reach down and flip it over onto its back the tortoise lies there its belly baking in the hot sun beating its legs trying to turn itself over but it cannot do so without your help you are not helping why?
4: Uh, Is the answer why cells interlinked? No
3: it's what's a tortoise
4: (laughs) oh yeah what's a tortoise cells interlinked
3: (laughs) Alex yep you're reading a magazine
4: <laughs> oh, that's handy.
3: You come across a full page nude photo of a girl or guy. Mm. You show it to your husband, wife, uh, slash wife, who likes it so much he, she hangs it on your bedroom wall. Mm. The girl slash guy is lying on a bearskin rug. Mm. Cells interlinked. <laughs> okay. Final one. Vicky. Yes. React to this. You're watching a stage play. A banquet is in progress. The guests are enjoying an appetizer of raw oysters. (laughs) The entree consists of boiled dog stuffed with rice. The raw oysters are less acceptable to you than a dish of boiled dog.
4: Oh, um... (laughs) Uh, where do they eat dogs in, uh, there's a line but the, the line in the book is really funny she says where do they eat dogs and he says in the Philippines and she says "He wants to watch a movie say in the Philippines <laughs> which is very funny um, I am appalled by uh, the dog I would report everybody involved and the oysters actually as it goes because I'm allergic to oysters that is all
3: I needed thank you <laughs> um the quiz is a draw. Good. Um, and Alex is a replicant. 100%.
2: Yay! <laughs> is that good? <laughs> Great. Yeah. That is us done on Blade Runner. Uh, so before we talk about uh, next week... Uh, no, in fact, let's talk about next week. We've got another two shows coming up. Chris, it's your week, isn't it? No, Vicky, it's, it's your week. week. Did you come up with a clue? I did. It's really oh, good. Lovely, lovely. Are you ready? Right, yep. Brilliant.
4: <laughs> Congratulations on your new arrival. <laughs> Congratulations on your new arrival, or congratulations on your new evil rival.
3: Um, <clears> we changed the <throat> films we're doing, so I'll you do the quiz.
2: You didn't tell me that. Oh my god, <laughs> we had a massive conversation about it outside, me and Chris, when you were in the toilet.
4: Oh yeah, fine. I
3: also it was also on WhatsApp yesterday.
4: Oh, the bloody wasn't. Yes,
3: was. go on then, show me. Do it after. Do it afterwards. Um, should we cut this out? We'll mm-hmm. cut this out. No, it's fine. It's fine because it's it's good to show that we are. A, a Alex, have you got a clue for this? No. I've got uh, a crap one. Okay. Have you got one? I've got a crap one. Great, let's do yours. you got a better one. No. All right. The clue is not Cause your new v- cause arrival.
2: Because it's, it's Vicky's week. That's why I didn't bring a clue, because Vicky's week. But go on. Just do your clue. Uh, slobs v. snobs. Nice. Slobs v. snobs. Yes. Yeah, why not? Uh, all right, then. That's your clue. Um, good luck with that. There'll be a better one on Twitter once we've had to think about it. Yeah, uh, in the meantime, <laughs> that is it for this episode. We are back on Thursday talking about Blade Runner 2049 and deciding whether this movie, Blade Runner or Blade Runner 2049, is our victor this week. Until then, please do subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It means a great deal to us. Thank you for listening. Check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod. Speak to you Thursday. Bye-bye for now.
1: This was a Stack production and part of the Acast Creative Network.
0: Hold up.